0: So we begin a new series of lessons, as I mentioned earlier. And today we're going to talk about the day of Pentecost. And we read in Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all together, gathered together in one place. But I want to turn our attention, if you would, if you've got your Bibles with you, I want us to turn back to Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 23. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, the third book of the Bible. Leviticus chapter 23. And we'll start in verse 15. Leviticus chapter 23, verse 15. We don't have it up on the screen, but... uh, Uh, we are going to go back the old-fashioned way and read from our Bibles. And you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. Remember last week we were talking about the Feast of the First Fruits offering, which you'll read in the previous verses. Remember, when it was about to be harvest time, they would gather uh, some portion of their crops and they would bring it to the priest and the priest would wave it before God as a sign that there was more of a harvest to come, but that this belongs to God first. And now we're into the Feast of Weeks So this is what he's talking about here in verse 15. So he says, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. So what does that all mean? That means there's 49 weeks, right? And you count beginning the day after the Sabbath. So that would be what day? The first day of the week, right? The seventh day was the Sabbath. So the day after the morrow, or the day after the Sabbath, the morrow after the Sabbath, you begin counting. Seven Sabbaths. So seven times seven is 49 plus the day after tomorrow which you begin is 50 that's the feast of weeks the funny thing is is you can't read the word pentecost here in this passage because the word pentecost pentecost day is a greek word right and of course the old testament is written in hebrew so you're not going to find a greek word in the hebrew text but you will find it in the new testament And it means 50th, just means 50, 50 days. And so hence Pentecost, 50 days. So we're dealing with that here on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after the first offering, Christ. And now we're gonna begin uh, as Luke writes, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, had fully come, they're all together in one place. So uh, that's the the idea where we get the word Pentecost from and what it means. Uh, We were talking about this yesterday, uh, the idea that the Greek has word pictures to it. So a Greek word gives us a representation or a symbol that helps us explain the word. So Pentecost Day is 50, and it's applied to that day, the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost, and we get that idea now. Now it means a little bit more to us with that understanding. So as we consider more on Pentecost, we find that uh, in... uh, I got a book in my library. It was written by J.D. Bales, who was a professor at Harding University in uh, Searcy. And uh, he wrote this book. He entitled it The Hub of the Bible. And it's a a book dealing with just the, the analysis of Acts chapter two. And he called it The Hub of the Bible because what's the hub? It's the center, right? The hub cap. Of a wheel. It's the center of the wheel. And so it's the hub of the Bible. Most passages in the Old Testament point toward that day, the day of Pentecost. And most passages that we read about in the New Testament point back to that day, the day of Pentecost. And so the day of Pentecost is a significant day. Not only is it a significant day for the Jews, But it's a significant day for you and me because it's today, it's the birthday of the church. It's the birthday of the church. It's the day that the church came into existence. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. But now back to Acts chapter 2 in your Bibles. Acts chapter 2. Hey, Larry, maybe you can back up to uh, the scripture reading. We can put it up there on the screen. I should have thought about that earlier, but I'm slow. All right. Notice what Luke is going to write here for us. He says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And he's talking there about the disciples, that is, the apostles. The antecedent of that word, they were all, they, refers back to verse 26 of chapter 1. The apostles. They, the apostles. They were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting, Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire and one sat upon each of them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So here we have a fulfillment of not only what Joel had promised, but also what Jesus had promised. You remember back when Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan, at his baptism, John had said that I baptize you with water, but there is one greater than I who will come and baptize you with spirit and with fire. Right? Then we come to Acts chapter one and we find that Jesus is talking to the 12 and he tells them, he says, listen, Remember what John said? He goes, I will come and I will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. He leaves out the other portion. He doesn't say and with fire. Because fire is punishment. Fire means judgment. And so the general expression that was made in Matthew chapter 3, Luke chapter 3, dealing with uh, the baptism of Christ and what John said there, deals with a general statement that made application to the apostles the promise was for them and jesus applies the promise of being baptized in the holy spirit to them and to them alone no one else is baptized or was baptized in the holy spirit except for those apostles Some might consider Cornelius being baptized in the Spirit, but we'll get to that in our study of the Holy Spirit whenever that might be. But I encourage you to come to that study whenever that starts up uh, uh, and we'll have a, a, a full dealing with that. But in the meantime, Jesus was the one who was going to administer Holy Spirit baptism and he was going to do that with the apostles. And so, he tells them in Luke chapter 24, he says, Thus it is written, and thus it behold the Son, that repentance and remission of sins be preached in his name, beginning where? At Jerusalem. At Jerusalem. And then he goes on to say to the apostles in Luke chapter 24 and verse 49. He says, Tarry. Or wait in Jerusalem till you are endued with power from on high, and then we turn to the book of Acts. Luke is the same writer, and in chapter one, in verse eight, he tells the apostles to wait in Jerusalem, and that they would be when the Holy Spirit they would receive power when the Holy Spirit came upon them. Now this goes back to the book of John. John chapter 13, John chapter 14, John chapter 15, John chapter 16. That is Jesus with his apostles in the upper room on the night he's going to be betrayed on the night before his crucifixion. It's called the upper room discourse. And it's an intimate occasion with Jesus and the eleven. Judas has gone out to do what Judas was going to do. So we have the account of Jesus with the 11, and he's preparing them for his departure, and they still don't understand it. And then he says, I'm preparing you. I'm not going to leave you as orphans, but I'm going to send you another helper, the Holy Spirit, he will guide you into all truth. That goes back to the promise made in Matthew 3, uh, Matthew 3 and Luke 3, the idea of being baptized in the Spirit. So at the end of Luke's gospel, he says to the apostles, wait in Jerusalem for the promise of my Father, where you will be endued with power from on high. And then we come into Acts chapter one. What's he say? Beginning in verse four. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise, same promise of the father in Luke 24. "Uh, Wait for the promise of the father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John surely baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then in verse 8, he says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the world. That's Luke's great commission account in the book of Acts. And the Holy Spirit was going to guide to work with the apostles by giving them the ability to preach. The Holy Spirit would give them the words whereby they would speak the gospel. And so he says, you gotta be in Jerusalem though before that happens. And they'll, they'll be the ambassadors of Jesus Christ. Uh, they will have all the power, supernatural power that Jesus had And they will be guided in their preaching and in their thoughts and in their words by the Spirit. They needed that. They didn't have Bibles for the New Testament yet. So there was no pages they could turn to to preach to the people and say, hear this, you need to hear this. No, the Spirit would give them a perfect message guiding them to speak it using humans to preach a spiritual message. So we come into uh, chapter 2, and it says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all, uh, all with one accord in one place, and then all of a sudden, this commotion breaks out. There's a sound of a rushing mighty wind, and tongues as a fire, divided tongues as a fire, sitting on each of the apostles' heads, right? And uh, and what does that represent? Languages, divided tongues, many tongues, right? Many languages. And we'll address that here in just a second. Now, I want to go back uh, now, uh, if we could, back to... Uh, The slide that has Isaiah. Can you find it, brother? I'm putting you and me on the spot. (laughs) All right. Now, it shall come to pass in the latter days, last days, same thing, that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills. And all nations, all nations, uh, there, were, there was every nation under heaven gathered in Jerusalem for Pentecost. So all the nations, every nation are there. And he says that all the nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and they'll say, come, let us go up to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord. So we're going to go to the house of the God of Jacob, the house of God. He's talking about the church, right? He's talking about that kingdom. Remember in Mark chapter nine, verse one, Jesus said this. He says, there are some standing here today who will not taste death. You will not die till they see the kingdom come with power. Now, the day of Pentecost is fully here. The promise of the Spirit being filled. These apostles are being filled with power, being filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in other languages to accommodate all the nations that were there that day on the day of Pentecost for that feast and they're going to preach to them in their own languages. We come to this passage sometimes and people say, well, uh, is the miracle about the speaking or the hearing? It's about the speaking. The emphasis here is that you were speaking in other tongues, not on the audience hearing. So if you were from Rome and one of the apostles were turned to you, and start preaching to you in Latin or Italian, then you could understand the message. That's not a miracle. So if someone was here from India and they and they didn't understand English, and all of a sudden Don stood up and he started talking Indian, right? And they could understand the message by his preaching. So it was that day. Uh, so they're preaching to the people there. and uh, But you're going to say, well, weren't there 15 nations and only, and only 12 apostles? Yes, but that doesn't mean they had to hear preaching at the same time. Uh, maybe Peter or another apostle uh, took to the other crowd a little bit later. Uh, so it's not out of the realm of uh, understanding when it comes to that. So the house of God, where else do we read about the house of God? First Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, right? He starts, he tells us, he says, that you ought to know how to behave yourselves in the house of God. You know, when, when I was little, uh, when we were kids growing up, and I'm sure all of you, uh, the preachers and the elders, would uh, when, the, when the young kids were getting out of control, they'd have to say uh, to the kids, you need to learn how to behave yourself in the house of God. And we call this the the house of God, but he's not really referring to the building. He's referring to the church. Now, a lot of people think the church is the building, but the church is not the building. The church is what? The people, right? We we messed up when we were growing up, and they said... uh, Here's the church, here's the steeple, open the door, and here's all the people. I can't do that, but you know here's the church, and then here's the people. No, here's the people, which is the church. The ecclesia, the called out ones, that's church. So he says, you learn how, know how to behave yourselves in the house of God, which is the church, the pillar and ground of the truth. So uh, the house of God, the church would be established in the high mountain of Zion, Mount Zion. And Zion was the, uh, the sacred name of the city of Jerusalem, the city of David. And there uh, the house would be built. But also notice, he says, and we shall walk or he will teach us his ways, ways, and we shall walk on his paths, paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, word. So, what do we got? We got ways, paths, law, word. Same thing, same message, all different words describing the same message being preached, the gospel. And Peter. And the rest of the apostles that day began to preach the first gospel sermon to all the people gathered there that day on the day of Pentecost. And so there's a lot of uh, things going on here because he says uh, in uh, Act or going back to uh, Isaiah, he says, now it shall come to pass in the last days, the latter days, the last days, now, if you go back to Acts chapter 2 in uh, verse uh, 17, it says, And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my Spirit on all flesh. And so uh, what we have here is we have nations, nations, right? Nations in Isaiah, nations here in Peter's sermon. Uh, we also have here the last days being contemplated. They were contemplated 750 years before Pentecost in the book of Isaiah. And now they're being contemplated the very day of Pentecost, uh, the last days. He didn't say last day, but last days. So there's a period. We call that the Christian dispensation or the gospel dispensation. You have three dispensations of time divided in the Bible. You have the patriarchal system or age dispensation. Then you have the Mosaic age dispensation, era, however you want to call it. And then you have the Christian dispensation or gospel dispensation. And we're living in those last days. But here's the beginning of those last days. And so it's historic from that perspective. So let's now consider uh, Peter's sermon here. Uh, We think it quite appropriate that Peter is preaching three points to a sermon. (laughs) You know, brother, when you were going to preaching school, that's what they taught us. Your, your, Your sermon has to have three points in a poem or, you know, some illustration or whatever. Right, three points. Well, here we have a three pointed sermon, right? And it begins in verse uh, 22. Men of Israel, hearing these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. So, notice, Jesus is a man human, attested by God, attested by God, how? By miracles. And he says God worked through him. The Holy Spirit worked through Jesus. See, when Jesus became a man, we think think Jesus was, was all God and all man, and he was, and therefore he could walk around and just do what he wanted with all sorts of miracles, but he couldn't. He needed the Holy Spirit because of the human side. And through the human side, the Spirit worked the miracles. Without the Spirit, Jesus as a man could not work those miracles. So God worked through him. And we understand the Holy Spirit is God and he worked through Christ. But notice, he's proved to be the Messiah, the Son of God by the miracles that he worked. Right? And notice, as Peter's standing up and he's preaching, he says, uh, that uh, which God worked through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, you know what he did. You saw it. You were there. You beheld it. In fact, he had such a following of Jews in Judea that he became famous. And then you remember the day uh, was the what we call Palm Sunday, when he's hailed as king, the king of David, right? And they're saying, Hosanna's in the highest. Hallelujah, hallelujah, we have our king. And then Thursday of the same week, or Friday of the same week, they put him to death. Bunch of fickle people we are. And and so he says, you knew that he was a son of God by those miracles. Remember what Nicodemus said in John chapter 3? Because teacher, rabbi, we know that you are a man from God because no one can do these signs except God be with him. So they knew. They knew that he was very special and that God was working with him through him. And, uh, and so that's something we need to consider. But the second thing is that he was proved to be uh, the son of God or the Messiah by the resurrection of the dead. Notice, He says, him, Christ, in verse 23, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. And then he starts quoting Old Testament scripture, Old Testament prophecy, about the rising of the Christ and how his body would not decay. So now we're into the third point that Peter's making here, that he was proved to be the son of God, the Messiah, because he fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament. And when you read further through Acts chapter two, there's a number of Old Testament passages that Peter's quoting. And uh, just he's like spitting them out, boom, 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 boom in repetition form, uh, and uh, and so we don't have time to go through all those, but you can look at those a little bit later. And so, 50 days earlier, these same Jews were walking by Jesus hanging on the cross, and they're spitting at him. And they're blaspheming him in his name. And they're saying all kinds of vile things about him. And of course, you know the story. He was brutally beaten beforehand. And then he had to carry that cross. He needed help to carry it. And then finally, he was nailed to that cross. And now he's dying from asphyxiation by hanging on the cross and people passing by young and old alike blaspheming him and spitting at him. And uh, and so 50 days earlier, that's a picture of the hard hearts of the Jews. I mean, you can't get any harder in a heart than those folks. But now because of this preaching that Peter's doing on the day of Pentecost, we're seeing hearts melt we're seeing hearts being softened and they just realized and it all just dawned on them when Peter said therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has raised this Jesus whom you crucified as both Lord and Christ And when they heard that, you know their response. Men and brethren, what shall we do? We we are now understanding we have put to death our Messiah, our anointed one, the Christ, the one that was prophesied, the one that Peter laid out with three points. We put him to death. What can we do? And you know the response that Peter gave. See, we often think about chapter 2 of Acts as being all about baptism. It's not. Peter's preaching about Jesus. And I want us to think about that because in verse 22, what's it say? Men of Israel hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 22. And then go to verse 36 where he closes out his sermon. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know surely that God has made this Jesus. He's preaching about Jesus. And then they realize they're murderers. They killed Jesus. And now, and now, being led by the Spirit, Peter gives them the remedy. Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for, ah, for... The remission of sins. What do we have to do? Peter says, repent. A lot of people stop right there. That's all you need to do is repent because that's part of faith. But Peter says, repent and be baptized. That's what you need to do. Well, what's the purpose? For, for what? The remission of sins. To remit. You know what it means to remit? to send back for the sending back of your sins so repent and be baptized who? every one of you everyone Jew, Gentile doesn't matter everyone and yet so many today will come to these passages they'll strain their eyes they'll look at it and say We don't need to be baptized. It's so easy. Look at the simplicity of the gospel message that Peter proclaimed on this day. You can't get any easier in understanding that message than the day of Pentecost message. And then Peter says, Here, here's what you need to do. Here's what you can do to save yourselves. And isn't that what he says in verse 40? Notice what he says. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. The King James says, save yourselves from this wicked generation. So here we have Peter's sermon and we have three points to the sermon that prove he was the Christ. And because he's the Christ you are to repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. And that's exactly what we're dealing with here with what must I do to be saved? What must I do? What does that mean? It means what must I do to receive grace? You can't have salvation without having grace. You can't have grace without being saved. It also means how does it? It means to get into Christ so salvation is about receiving grace it's about getting into Christ and it's about having all spiritual blessings found where in Christ it makes all the difference in the world and the world looks at baptism and they scoff at it but it's the dividing line between what was and what is between the old man and the new man between the world and a Christian, between a child of God and not a child of God. There's a lot of people that need to hear that. Perhaps we can bring some visitors. We can make sure they're safe with masks and whatever else. But we're going to be dealing with Pentecost probably for the next two weeks. Uh, it's so basic, it's going to take three weeks to talk about it. <laughs> So I encourage you to come. But I also encourage you to think about the implications of the sermon that Peter preached. And that is, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the purpose, for the remission of sins. That's how <laughs> sins are sent back to God. If you desire this morning to have your sins sent back, pat to God, why don't you come forward now as together we stand and sing.